Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Now, if you're watching this on any of our social media channels, you'll see that I've got two guests with me today. And you'll recognize one of them, uh, Sally Ganga, who is another of the hosts of the show. Hey, Sally. Hey, Ian, how you doing? Thanks for having me on today. Glad to have you on. And then we've got Shannon Vasconcelos, who's also a frequent guest of the show. And she, she's here for the duration of the show as well. Hey, Shannon. Hi, Ian. How are you doing? I'm doing great. And, you know, we all did our homework, right? I, I kind of like this is uh, getting in extra credit. I wish we had <laughs> sort of a special theme song that we could play for the extra credit uh, version of the show. Um, but this is this is a time in sort of at least in the admission cycle where things shift from one set of students to another. And we thought we would take this opportunity to read a book together and then come on and discuss it uh, with anybody else who's interested who has read it. And so the book, um, for those who don't know or didn't hear on a previous show, is uh, called Who Gets In and Why? A Year Inside College Admissions, and it's by Jeffrey Salingo. And Salingo is a, um, an education reporter for the New York Times. And he's put together this book that I, I would say is very well-researched um, over the last few years, um, he has been inside admission offices, has talked to students, has done a lot of investigation on sort of how college admissions and college finance works and what the effects are on both institutions and the students who are seeking to be accepted to those institutions. And what we want to do today is just discuss some of the things that we found interesting in this book. Uh, if you've read it, you can follow along with us. If you haven't read it, but would like to, you know, our podcasts are available uh, for download, so you can listen to them at your leisure. Uh, and maybe you'll, you'll press pause, go pick up a copy or get it at the library and, and dig right in. Um, so what we're going to do is for the, for, we've got three segments we want to talk about today. The first segment, we're going to talk a little bit about sort of how he advises students and families approach the research process and the selection process. Uh, the second segment, we're going to talk a little bit about early decision we might have an axe to grind or two uh, in that particular segment. And then uh, for the third segment, we're going to just talk about our, our big takeaways of the book, maybe offer a, a review. I don't know. This isn't a book review necessarily, but uh, we'll talk a little bit about some of the takeaways that we've got from it. Um, so let's kick it off just with thinking about kind of how he advises families to think about this process. And there's a lot of really great info that sort of is sprinkled throughout. Um, Sally, I'll kind of start with you and we'll just open this up for a conversation. What were some things that you found particularly interesting, good about the way that he talks about uh, how families should engage with the college admission process? I mean, I loved what he had to say. And it's kind of funny because now as I'm sitting here in front of the camera with you, I'm like, wait, did he say that? Or did I just say that? And I think <laughs> I think that he said that because that's something I say every day when right. I'm on the phone. Yeah. I mean, the biggest message that he has that I like, that I kind of like, and he doesn't use these words, but it's kind of like, calm down, everybody. Yeah. Calm down. Yeah. There are options. There are lots of good options. There are not major differences between what happens to you if you go to UPenn or if you go to University of Rochester. So just really like everybody relax is kind of the subtext but again maybe that's what i'm reading into it because that's what i always want to say to people. that sounds like you sally yeah <laughs> not just because it's coming out of your mouth but yeah, yeah exactly it's actually just a two-page book it just says just yeah. relax <laughs> relax that's all you, need you have know. options so yeah but you know i think that you know where he talks he really um emphasizes like through his examples of different students he really emphasizes to students having an open mind. And it's kind of cool the way he talks about the students. Like he talks about, I'm trying to remember, passengers and drivers, right? Yes. Yeah. So yes. the passengers are the students who, frankly, I saw a lot of those students when I worked at Whittier. They yeah. kind of like apply to the schools that are local. They don't think about it too much. 
much. They probably apply later. Um, and then there are the students that are drivers. That's a much smaller percentage of students. And the drivers are the students who are, you know, often they're gunning for the Ivies. They are looking at colleges really early. They can, if you ask them where they want to apply, they know already. They've got a plan in place. But one of the things that's really notable is he makes it clear that their information isn't always valid and that with the drivers, they're often really, really focused on name brand. And even there's even an example with um, a young woman. I think she was applying. I think it was between Penn and Dartmouth for early decision. Yeah. And um, and her mom was like, look, I don't know if you want Penn for Penn or you just want you Penn because it's prestigious. Right. And so the fact that he kind of addresses that head on is one of the things that I like best about the book. That was something that I really enjoyed reading. Although I will say that it just, it reminded me so much of conversations that I have with my own students that it got a little like stress. Lots of them. (laughs) Lots of them. You know, I think, I think if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a driver in the process Mm -hmm, or your student may be a driver, right? So we should acknowledge that from the get go. And if you're a frequent listener of this show, you probably have more and better information than a lot of other students have because we, we sort of give it to you just transparently in terms of what our experience has to share. I think, Shannon, there's also sort of the sense of like drivers and passengers um, and how that dovetails with finance uh, because he does address quite frequently yeah. the prospect of paying for college and how that is a far off concern for the cases he talks about and then also yeah. just students in general. Until the time comes that, oh my gosh, I have to pay for this. I have to pay for this. How did you react to those sections of the book? Well, it certainly struck home for me because I, you know, I talk to people in this position every day and they are so often the drivers can get so focused on prestige and ignore the fact whether they can pay for that school or not. Um, and, And like you were saying, the... There's the passengers who are sort of don't disengage from the process, don't know much about the process, who are uninformed in, in one way. And then there are the drivers who feel like they are informed, but in fact, tend to be misinformed. And where it, it comes down to finance, I think that the drivers assume that they're equally likely to get scholarship funding from mm-hmm. any school. Mm-hmm. Um, these are often high achieving students and they assume they will get scholarships because they have earned scholarships. I'm putting air quotes for those of you who are not <laughs> watching on the video. I'm, they have earned scholarships. So any college will be, uh, you know, as likely to give me scholarships. Um, they have heard that, oh, don't worry about it. Nobody pays full price. Um, and I think they've heard that Silingo references, they've heard this in the media. I right. felt temporarily guilty about that because I, I probably said this on the show and on media outlets that almost nobody pays full price when you look at the grand scheme of things, the, the right. uh, overall landscape. But in fact, the overall landscape is largely lower income folks, number one, who qualify for need pays state, and um, also folks attending um, what they refer to as buyer schools. Mm -hmm. I hope I'm not saying it in reverse, where they have to um, recruit students with merit-based scholarships. If you Mm -hmm. are a high income student applying to only seller schools is how he refers to them, um, that don't have to recruit students with discounts, that students are willing to pay full price, you you are in fact paying full price for that school. Um, yeah. You are one of the few, even though in the grand scheme of things, relatively few students pay full price, you are the very few. So you have to um, understand that up front, then I think a lot of drivers don't. Uh, and then on, on the flip side of things, um, for the, the passengers in, in his landscape, there's still lots of misunderstanding about the college finance process, um, but it presents in a different way in that they often don't believe that they can afford any college at all. They can't afford to go to college or maybe just their local community college or maybe state college campus, and they don't realize that they would qualify 
for a whole lot of financial aid um, from some of these uh, richer schools um, that that would give them plenty of money. So I think there's there's a theme of a lack of transparency that nobody really knows what's going on in this process. And that certainly presents on the admissions side and on the financial side. It mm-hmm. does. And I just as a um, just to clarify for all our listeners, we're throwing around these terms. We read the book. So drivers in the process are students that are really well informed, relatively speaking, about how the admission process works and proactive about engaging with it. Passengers tend to be students who engage with this process only because deadlines are approaching. They typically will start applying in September, October, November of their senior year, rather than proactively looking at starting in January, February of their junior year. Um, And then when it comes to sellers and buyers, sellers are institutions that are wealthy. And so they are charging full price for students that can afford to pay. And those students are paying it. That's why we would consider that selling. Whereas buyers are willing to buy students typically by offering some sort of recruitment aid, merit aid, as he says in the book, which is a way of enticing students to attend. Um, One of the things at the end of this book that I found so striking was he switched over the conversation to a college counselor's office, a high school guidance counselor's office. And there are students just sort of trickling into this college counselor and saying, I got to talk to you about financial aid. So these are kids that have gotten in and they've gotten their packages and the packages are impossible to understand. And uh, this counselor is trying to help them make sense of it and understand whether they can ask for more and how. And mm-hmm. it's just my reaction to that was, which, what guidance counselor has that kind of information, that expertise to be able to unpack these financial aid packages that are so complicated? Um, and are these students actually understanding the full scope of this information? And it was pretty amazing, yeah. that, like the, you know, the number of families where the student gets into their top choice and then all of a sudden they have this conversation to say, you know, we can't afford this. What about your second choice or your third choice? Mm-hmm. Um, which is, a, you know, I don't think a lot of families really think about that eventuality. That always makes me crazy. I know this is you, Shannon, but I just have to say, like, (laughs) when I was applying to college, my mom sat me down. I lived in California. I grew up there. She said, you're applying to the UCs. I can afford the UCs. I know you want a smaller college. I'll let you apply to smaller colleges, but it might not work out financially. We're going to apply for financial aid. Maybe it'll work out. Maybe it won't. You need to find a UC that you're happy with. And I was like, okay. I mean, I knew the deal going yeah. forward. And believe me, I was not a kid who was like, yes, mother. I mean, like we, you know, <laughs> so I just, it's, that's yeah. anyway. Yeah. And they actually, I was just, if you saw me looking down, if you're watching on video, I was looking on my phone. Cause I made a note of this, the, uh, I don't think I wrote the exact quote, but to paraphrase, he said that parents suppress their financial anxieties so that their child's potential can take precedence which I think goes on in so many households, whether it's um, sort of conscious or not, whatever worries parents might have about the, the fight, the paying for it side of things, they make it secondary to my child's potential. This is their dream school. Mm-hmm. This is what they need to succeed is the right. perception. When in fact, he shows plenty of evidence in this book. And in fact, I wrote a blog post about it for anyone who wants to check out our blog at blog.getintocollege.com. I have to nice throw in a, a promo. Uh, good good at that That's kind great. of thing. Yep. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I wrote a blog post on the same thing about does where you go to college matter? And there are plenty and plenty of studies that confirm that the level of selectivity of the college you attend has on average no bearing on your income, which is, of course, the easiest thing to measure. You, you can talk right. about all the things that a college education gives you, but on your income post-graduation for, um, on average, it has no effect. There are certain subpopulations where it seems like it does have an effect uh, for students coming from less educated household, uh, underrepresented minority students. It mm-hmm. may actually give you um, some boost to your income later in life to have attended a, a very selective college. Um, for the typical driver family, um, you know, educated upper middle class, it actually makes no difference at all on average. Yeah. And he had mentioned, I think at one point there was this quote of 
parents seeing college as the first opportunity to sort of maximize the untapped potential of their high school students, that high schools aren't able to sort of launch students into a successful path, but there are very specific sets of colleges that can do that. And I I love you sort of bringing it back to that conversation about, you know, parents sort of saying, well, I'm willing to sacrifice financially so that you can have this experience. But the evidence, the data often show that, well, it's not about where you go. It's about how you go to school. I think that's a phrase that he uses here. It's about what you bring to the table when you get there. And I think students often recognize that much later when they are students, when they're a sophomore or a junior in college, they start to recognize that the opportunities they can take advantage of are opportunities that come to them because of who they are much more than where they go to school. I wonder how we can get people to better understand that earlier in the process. You know, students often have this sort of narrow focus of 20 to 30 schools that they are even willing to consider. And we know that there are hundreds of schools that might fit a particular student, even a top student, where they could be very, very successful. How, you know, Sally, we try and have these conversations with families every year, and we're starting to get into the point where students, new juniors are going to start to think about their college lists. How can we have these conversations and what can we do to help families better understand that there is a much wider set of possibilities with colleges than they think there may be? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's helpful. Some families are going to kind of listen to you as an expert, I've found. And the fact that I, I mean, honestly, I'm kind of like an admissions grandma at this point because I started. <laughs> no, come on, admissions. Sally. Well, I started working in admission. I'm not as old as Royal, like that one consultant he talks about in the book, <laughs> right. but I started working in admissions back in 1992. So, so it has been a while, but so um, like as much sort of, I always feel like as much enthusiasm as I can give them because, you know, the more colleges that we are all able to visit and we can say specific things about what we've seen that college offer, I think that tends to be really helpful. Like, I mean, I always start out by saying, well, I think that college is great. Here's some things that really stood out to me about it. And that helps with some families. But then there are other families that are like, nope, this is not what I've heard. This is not what my friends talk about at cocktail parties. And then the kind of second path that I take is trying to find as much data as possible. And this is one of the reasons why I really like the National Science Foundation list of um, baccalaureate origins of doctorates. Future doctorates. Future doctorates in math and science. So, you know, it ranks schools just by sheer numbers, in which case UC Berkeley is always at the top. Makes sense. Berkeley's a huge school. Then I think it's Cornell, et cetera. Um, But what's cool, right, is that then you see like University of Illinois is on that list. But if you do it by yield, and of course, I love this because I went to Reed and Reed is Me too, Sally. This is one of my favorite pieces of data. Yeah, exactly. Reed is very (laughs) high on this list. So, you know, so um, even though Reed doesn't even have engineering, Reed is like usually number four, like after MIT, Harvey Mudd and Caltech are always up in the yeah, top. Yeah. And then, uh, and then Reed is often, yeah, yeah, Reed is often like right there. Um, but what's cool about that is I, it's not just about boosting my own school. I promise. Like I love pointing out that places like New Mexico tech is on that list, New Mexico tech and Socorro. I am really pretty sure New Mexico tech is a buyer. Like New Mexico Tech is giving major scholarships. They're in a town that I've been to. It's fine. But Southern New Mexico is not Northern New Mexico. It's not like a beautiful, beautiful place. It's, it's a, it's a great school. And somehow look at what they do with their students. Yeah. Like actually if, if I think there are schools that do change students who go to them, you know, Lauren Pope talks about them in his book, colleges that change lives And I think that a school like New Mexico Tech is clearly one of those schools because they take students that probably are not as strong as the students at getting an engineering degree at a place like Columbia, right? And yet those students go on to do amazing things and get PhDs in high numbers. So I love being able to highlight colleges like that, that people haven't heard of. The, The thing that I think is just... It's so interesting because I think that when people engage with this college process, it's sort of like this river that's moving. And then at certain points, you have families that jump on and then they jump off, right? And so they haven't fully engaged with the full scope of everything that's going on. 
and they're choosing to come into it with a very limited amount of knowledge. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I feel that even for myself, when I worked at Reed, I very much felt like a particular kind of college experience, like the one Reed had, was better for mm-hmm. every student. And, and I went out and recruited student with that mindset. But at that point, I had only ever gone to Reed, and I'd only ever worked in the Reed admission office. And when I came here to college coach, and I started encountering more families with different kinds of priorities, I talked to my colleagues on the finance side, I saw things about you know, discount rate, I saw things about loan indebtedness, mm-hmm. my perspective changed really dramatically. Where if I were still at Reed and you said, well, where should your kids go to college? I would have said, well, Reed or a place like it. But now I said, well, University of Oregon's great. They've got a terrific honors college. That's my public university. And so your, your perspective really changes the more information you have. And I think what's really interesting about Salingo's book is he's got a lot more information because he's done all of this research. And I would love families to trust those of us who've done the research and had the experience and therefore see it from a broader perspective than them who are sort of coming into a process for a very narrow window of time and looking for a particular mm-hmm. outcome. Um, we, wow, we have a lot to talk about here. Um, we're going to take a pause. I think what we want to talk about next is early decision. And it's a really great sort of continuation of this conversation because the implicit message with early decision is that there is a one best college for anyone, which I think that the philosophy of this book would push against. So if you want to hear our conversation about ED as it relates to who gets in and why, uh, don't touch that radio dial. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hey, folks, welcome back to Getting In, a college coach conversation. We're doing some extra credit today, and if you're reading along with us, we... uh, well, we'll be sending you some extra credit points in the mail shortly. Uh, just just hold still, hold tight for those. Uh, but we're reading this book, uh, Who Gets In and Why? A Year Inside College Admissions by Jeffrey Salingo. Uh, and we want to talk in this segment about early decision. And I want to read just this uh, brief uh, snippet uh, from the chapter, Playing the Odds, which is all about ED. Um, it says, yes, ED provides certainty for students, but the practice largely benefits colleges because early applicants never find out whether they would have been accepted to another top choice school or if a different college might have offered more financial aid. That seems to me to be sort of the crux of what he's arguing in this chapter. And I think it's something that families never really consider. They Mm -hmm. think ED is an advantage for me, the student. I'm going to have a better shot of getting in. And so I have to find an ED school. Um, let's think about this, not from the perspective of families to start with, but instead to think about it from the perspective of universities and why they have ED. Um, and maybe Shannon, you can start us off just from a finance perspective, the role that early decision plays. And then Sally, I'd love if you could just talk a little bit about ED from an admission and enrollment stand, uh, enrollment management standpoint. Yeah, I would say from the financial standpoint, Universities love having ED to, it helps them in terms of locking in a portion of their class. I mean, and I, I'm going to, because I need to, I'm going to go beyond the financial <laughs> part of it, sure. but 
they love to accept students that they know are going to come because, of course, with early decision, you're making a commitment up front. If you accept me, I will enroll. That's a wonderful thing um, for a university to have what they call a high yield rate. Mm -hmm. Your yield is your percentage of students who you accept to actually enroll. Um, A high yield makes a college look darn nice. It helps them move up in those U.S. News and World Report rankings. Mm-hmm. This is something that every college is after. From a financial perspective, um, it also allows them to lock in a good number of students who are not concerned about finances or not concerned about paying for college. Um, because when you make that early decision commitment, you are, uh, again, guaranteeing the, guaranteeing the school you will come regardless of what kind of scholarship money they offer you. Um, So it tends to be um, higher income folks, what in the college admissions and finance world, a lot of full pay students um, apply ED because um, students who are not full pay are unlikely to make that commitment up front because they want to be able to compare scholarship and financial aid offers among a number of schools to figure out the school that's going to work best for them. Uh, Students who apply ED, sort of the assumption and what tends to play out in fact is that you're not so worried about money. And I think to sort of borrow from his terminology, just about drivers and passengers, drivers tend to apply more often to ED than passengers by a huge margin. And drivers tend to come from families that are more well-off. They're more yes. engaged with and aware of Certainly, the yes. process. So there are fewer passengers applying ED, which means there are fewer low-income students applying ED, which means there are fewer students who need financial aid in the ED pool. Correct. And I think it's fair to say, like, if you're calculating yield, like, you've got this huge span of unknown, the 300 seats you need to fill your freshman class. If you can make half of that class a known quantity, then you know how much money you have to play with for a smaller right. number of students which is a nice sort of calculus to have to work on yeah. if you're an enrollment manager and financial aid yeah. office. Sally, what about um, from the admission side of the coin, what does ED sort of allow colleges to do? I mean, <laughs> I'm trying <laughs> Try to, not to I'm get too carried away. Control yourself, <laughs> control yourself, Sally. <laughs> I'm trying to be polite about this. I, I mean, I don't like ED. I'm going to be really clear about it. I, I will say that, that, um, Colleges at certain income levels, I don't think people realize that institutions like Whittier and Reed to a lesser extent, I mentioned those two because I worked at them, they really don't have unlimited funds um, for their students. I mean, no place has unlimited funds, but they don't have enough, quite literally. And so everything has to be planned out so very carefully. And so ED really is a tool that in some cases might almost be needed for survival, for that colleges. I mean, um, Selengo himself talks about the fact that, you know, there's something like what 10 or 15 colleges are closing every year since, since the great recession. I mean, just a really like nuts. So figure. And while some of those colleges, it's probably fine that they're gone. It in general, the loss of colleges like that is also another way that like lower income students, passengers are have fewer options. Yeah. Right. A student yeah. who might benefit yeah. from a smaller college with more handholding is then going to be thrown into the local public where maybe the graduation rate is literally 25 percent in some cases. Yeah. Right. And then that is not a good that's not necessarily a good situation. So I want to start by saying I had more sympathy like when I was at Reed. Um, the early decision process made more sense to me. It was a challenging yeah. process, but. I understood why we do why we did it. And it did feel like because Reed was such a self-selective institution, we really were getting the right students applying early decision. I mean, My kids, experience weren't, too, Sally. kids yeah. weren't applying to Reed because they thought I was going to give them some big leg up on Wall Street. You know, it's not that kind of an institution. <laughs> um, on the other hand, at University of Chicago, when I was there, it was um, – we had, frankly, plenty of money. It was sort of amazing and wonderful to work for a school where we could have admitted more students who needed full rides, and it would have been fine. 
Yeah. Like enough money was there. I mean, I'm sure that the president of the college would have argued with me, but like, let's face it, Chicago has enough cash. So do, right. so does Columbia. So does UPenn. So does WashU. Like, I mean, all these other schools. So when those colleges and, and Chicago, you know, has added two EDs at this point since I left, when those colleges add ED, they are really like the only, they're not worried about survival. So they're just using it to please their trustees, to please the president of the college because he has to please the trustees mm-hmm. so that they can say, look, my rank is now above UPenn's rank or UPenn can say, no, our rank is, or if, if one college's rank you know, declines, they're going to get a call from the president and from trustees. I mean, it literally felt to me like it came down to that because when I was at Chicago and we were ad- admitting a much higher percentage than they admit now, we were still getting unbelievably great students. I mean, it was just, they were so strong. And so the need to kind of, you know, get students to commit to admit a much smaller percentage had nothing to do with having a greater quality of student at the institution. So in case anybody's wondering how I really feel, <laughs> I really Sally think- unfiltered. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this is uh, I really extra think- credit. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, early I'm as critical. I'm really actually very, very pleased. I'll bring it back to the book. I'm very pleased that Salingo is critical of it and and kind of lays bare what's going on. And he's not even he you know talking as much about schools at that very, very, very top level. I mean, Emory's pretty close to it. Um, you know, like, but really the students at the top level with these enormous endowments, there really is no reason that I think that they need this. They're not facing the reality that some of the other early decision schools are facing. So, um, so yeah, so that's how I feel about it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you can see the idea of, I mean, just to sort of play with some numbers, right? So if you can lock in half of your class through an ED round, that's a much smaller pool of students. You have to admit a certain percentage that might be a little higher than your regular rate, but that's a smaller percentage of your overall applicant pool. And then you have the same number of seats, if you're admitting half the class, that need to be filled with 10 times as many applicants. Mm-hmm. And so when you're a family, you're looking at that and you're saying, wow, the admit rate at this school is five times higher. If I apply ED, I feel like I have to in order to yes. get in. And I think that that's where the challenge is, right? So if, if Sally were Zarina of college admission, she could just say ED doesn't exist anymore. Wave a wand and it's gone. But we do have to sort of live with this as a particular policy that colleges mm-hmm. use. How does this understanding of what ED is all about affect family decisions? Um, and to what extent can families sort of push back? Do we say stop, stop applying ED? That maybe it's not something that you should do for an individual family. I mean, I yeah. do caution families very carefully that early action is good because it's non-binding. So I'm still pushing to students apply earlier than maybe they would like to, but I'm really careful with early decision to Mm -hmm. say it has to be your top choice. But the downside is that this is really, I also have to be extremely honest that it is going to help them potentially. Honestly, though, let's be really clear. It's not going to help everybody. There are students who think that because they have B's instead of A's, they have to apply early decision or they won't get in. And I want to be really clear if the fa- if the school expects A's, you still have to have A's early decision. It just ups your odds among the students who have kind yes. of the basic qualities that the school is looking for. Um, so it, the downside of all this is that, I mean, I worked with a student in the fall who just, you know, made every decision based on getting into a more prestigious school. And it didn't matter what kind of gentle messages I tried to give her. Like none of that made it through um, you know, yeah, it just, it didn't matter. Like I, in the end I was like, okay, fine. I'll help you with what you want to do. I'm not advising this, but here we are. You I know? think if, if yeah. you follow that logic of getting into a more prestigious school, you're going to lean more on ED. Whereas if you take mm-hmm. the lingo sort of advice that you can be successful at a wider population of schools, I think ED becomes less interesting to you yeah. because I say, well, why would I apply ED to Northwestern when I can apply to all these other schools, compare financial aid packages and figure out the best offer for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Sh- yeah. Shannon, I mean, it's sort of, it also feels to me like, why is a student applying ED if they can't then negotiate aid? If they can't 
look at merit scholarships. Like it feels like you have this, you're sort of, you've got this curtain in front of you that doesn't allow you to see what all the possibilities are. Yep. From, from a neutral financial perspective, it's complete insanity. No one would ever do it. <laughs> if you, it is because colleges sell themselves as not a consumer good. It, right. it's, it's something else altogether. It's an experience and particular colleges will sell themselves as an experience that cannot be recreated elsewhere. If you can imagine, you know, think about any other purchase uh, of this magnitude in terms of finances, a house or a car. Can you imagine walking into a car dealership and the dealer telling you, we've got a real special car for you. You can't actually experience it yet, first of all. <laughs> so it's one of the, he, he talks about these experience goods that you, you don't actually know what you're getting until after the fact. So you don't really, you don't really quite know what you're getting, but we, we guarantee you it's something you can't get elsewhere. You need this car <laughs> or else, mm-hmm. you know, and, but here's the deal. You got to sign on the dotted line right now. Uh, we're not going to tell you what it costs up front, you, but, you, but you need to tell us right now that you're buying it, no matter what it costs. You are not allowed to go to any other dealer, see what they have to offer, see what their cars cost, and make an informed decision. It's really a way, from my perspective, it forces families into making uninformed decisions, yeah. which is the shameful part for me. Yeah. And, and he actually talks about in the book how students um, – some of these drivers that he's talking to know they're going to apply ED somewhere. They don't know where, but they're going to find a school yeah. to apply ED just because of the advantage it it will give them. That's so, the most, that's the most challenging conversation yeah. I think that I have with families. If For a student to say, I haven't decided what my ED yet is, or I got to find my ED school. I think that one of the things that we can just push back on as counselors, as parents who are listening to the show, if you're talking to other parents, you do not need to apply ED anywhere. ED is not a natural part of this process. You can decide to forego that option entirely. And in many cases, many cases, you are in a better position not applying ED anywhere than you are applying ED somewhere, Um, both from the financial perspective, but also from the standpoint of just your overall engagement with and understanding of what this process is and thinking about your possibilities. I mean, I said before we went on the air, I I really don't like the term dream school. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that ED encourages that idea. What's your number one choice? All the conversations we have around college, where do you want to go to college? What's your dream school? What's your top choice? We should really lean more into this idea of having a number of different options and possibilities and applying with our whole selves to all of those schools and then considering the best choice based on where we get in. Mm -hmm. Um, Sally, I'll leave you with the last word on ED because I know you have a lot to say on it, Uh, but (laughs) you can take us out and then we'll, we'll go to the final, uh, final segment. Okay. I mean, I, I kind of had my say about my opinion about highly selective colleges, but the thing that I'll say about when I'm talking to students is I know you think this college is perfect for you, but it isn't. It's a very, very good school. It's a wonderful place. But when you get there, you will find things you don't like about it. And you need to be ready for that. And um, so I I really want to leave students with that. As happy as I was in college, I wasn't happy with 100% of everything. And that was the same thing for my friends who went to Ivy League schools. So that's the other thing. Like, it's early for you to determine what's perfect for you as well. That's right. Um, So... Yeah. It's a big choice. Try not to be committed too early, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's great. When we come back, we're going to do a final little segment. It's going to be a shorter one, but we're just going to wrap up with some of our thoughts on the book specifically, whether it's worth picking up, uh, if it's something that might be helpful for you and your family to read. So uh, we'll be back with that third segment. Don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. College admissions can be stressful. 
but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. What's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter? You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener QA segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to getting in a college coach conversation. We're having a lot of fun today because uh, we are kind of nerds, the three of us, and we're discussing a book. So that's great. Uh, it's Who Gets In and Why, A Year Inside College Admission by Jeffrey Salingo. We've already talked a little bit about some of the philosophy he has around the college search we dived, dove into the ED process uh, a little bit. Um, and now we're just going to talk about the book in general, um, sharing some of our thoughts about it. So uh, Sally, why don't you go first and, and just speak to the book itself and, and what you found to be helpful uh, mm-hmm. or good about mm-hmm. uh, what you were reading. What I think is going to be most helpful for families is just how he, he contextualizes how and why colleges are making different decisions, you know, that it's not about, I mean, I, I'm very, this is completely understandable, but students and parents are just thinking about, is my kid good enough to get in? And what they're not thinking about, what they can't really think about because they haven't been there is that colleges are trying to craft a class and they're thinking about and dealing with all kinds of institutional priorities, right? And he even says, for example, I wanna make sure I get this right, that there are colleges are dealing with some pretty big tensions too when they're making decisions. Um, So for private, it's often a tension between full pay students and low income applicants. They might have a very strong low income applicant, but if that applicant, you know, um, cannot pay very much, that student might be gone in favor of a full pay applicant who's nowhere near as strong. Now, I want to make it clear that, again, I am not talking about these top tier wealthy schools, but that's much more common what you're going to see at a lot of these schools. Um, And at public, the big tension is between in-state and out-of-state students. So just know that they're grappling with these really tough numbers that are not always going to be transparent. And then they also have to think about how many athletes are they going to admit? Like there's just so many different institutional priorities. How many people from the Dakotas? How many people here? And um, I think some people have a sort of basic understanding of it, but Salingo goes into it in some really, some pretty decent detail. So I think families that want to understand, get a broader understanding, Salingo's book is going to be really helpful. That's great. Shannon, what about you? What were some of your uh, big takeaways from the book? Yeah, I think it will be very helpful to families who are trying to understand this process. Um, It was helpful for me, you know, among the three of us, I'm the outsider here in that, you know, I know about college finance and I know about enrollment management in general, but I do not know the specifics of what goes on in those admissions committees. So it was really enlightening and kind of fascinating to me. Um, you know, some of the stuff, you know, I know that colleges have to shape their class, but the, uh, you know, the number of times students are, you know, kind of if this is accurate, you guys can tell me, you know, sort of conditionally accepted. We think this one's going to be accepted, but we now realize we have too many conditionally accepted. Mm-hmm. So now we've got to pull a whole bunch out, but now we realize we don't have enough English majors or athletes or legacies and we have to shuffle the class. People can be in and out and back in and you never know. You get the the acceptance letter or the rejection letter and you kind of never know maybe how close you were to get you almost got in or you almost didn't get in. Um, so I thought this, that part of it was just mm-hmm. fascinating. Um, but the, the basic uh, kind of message about how the admissions process is more often more about institutional goals than your worth as, as a student. And, 
helping families to understand that message, um, I think is just really valuable. And I think that he does a, a great job of illustrating it. Mm-hmm. I, you're totally right. I'm a little mad at you because when Sally was talking, I wrote down shaping a class because I <laughs> was reminded that I thought that that was so helpful. Yeah. And I think that that big takeaway is actually quite huge. I, you know, a lot of students think, all right, I'm sending this application off to this school that I've researched and I really like, and I want to see if they like me. And it is not that at all. Um, because you can even be in situations where they did like you, but you can't get in. And you sort of, there are a couple of examples from schools where it's like, well, we've got to pull down which means we've conditionally admitted a certain number of students. We have to pull down a thousand students by the end of the week. Mm-hmm. And so they're reading and they say, well, I really like this kid, good kid, great grades. And somebody else says, but well, we don't have room for them. And so they get mm-hmm. pulled out of the class. And I think that that clarity around what is really happening there can hopefully yeah. help to bolster some of the students that are feeling rejected by a process where their application was denied, but they have not been rejected. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you really see some of that that is laid bare in this book. Um, and hopefully, you know, what it can do is uh, it can either help families to better understand what that process is, but also maybe make them a little bit mad at some of these top schools in a way that allows mm-hmm. them to broaden their horizons a little bit more. Um, I, I love the insight just just for our listeners who haven't read this. You know, he spent some time with the University of Washington admission office, Emory Uh, and Davidson, and really gets to see what they actually are doing when they are making their decisions. And that is pretty cool stuff. I don't think Mm -hmm. it's helpful at all in terms of what your application will look like ultimately, but it is interesting just to know what it it looks like. Um, Do we feel like there are pieces of advice throughout this book that are worthwhile for a student who is looking to improve their application, or is it just informational about sort of what the process looks like. Yeah, I think that there's definitely some good advice. I mean, it's, it's, he's, he's more trying to give a broader picture. Um, but throughout, I, throughout there, I think that he really is giving some pretty concrete advice, like give yourself some time to figure things out. Don't automatically go for early decision. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of how to craft your application, try and be your authentic self, but also give the admission officers a lot of detail about who you are. Like he he shows some examples about missed opportunities where students don't fill out the, you know, extracurricular activity list, you know, right. very well. Mind you, I don't think that's a common problem for students who are applying for the drivers, but for passengers, that can be a big issue. So he gives, like, those are just a couple of the pieces of advice that he gives that I think are really helpful. Yeah. Shannon, did you, what do you think? Is this something that, I mean, it obviously, you're a curious person. You found it to be interesting <laughs> from that standpoint. Yeah. Did you feel like there was good advice to be had in here as well? Yeah, I I think so. And the biggest piece for me was not necessarily advice as to how to shape your college application, but more in how to shape your college search process. Mm -hmm. And his advice to students to create their own criteria for what Mm -hmm. they're looking for in a college. Do not be do not go based on what the colleges think you should do and what the college marketing departments tell you are important. Don't go by what U.S. News and World Report tells you is important. Don't go by what your, you know, friends and neighbors tell you is important in a college. Um, Create your own criteria. Mm -hmm. Um, And that will, if you do that, that will get you out of this loop (laughs) <laughs> of um, of this endless drive for prestige and the stress uh, and the insanity that, that it puts families under. If you can step out of that, and I think that this book help, will help a family to step out of that and create your own criteria, uh, I think that will be phenomenally helpful in, in a college search process. And, and that feels like stepping out of that is really something the whole family has to do because there are some great yeah. examples in here of parents being a little bit more kind of down to earth, but students pushing for prestige. And then you see other situations where the students are a little bit more fair-minded about what they're considering, but the parents are pushing for prestige. Mm -hmm. What's really interesting, there are three students that he actually follows from start to finish in their research process throughout this book. And two of the three of them are sort of unhappy by the end of the process, not not perfectly satisfied with where they came out. One of them got into the exactly the school that he wanted with the aid that he needed, 
and is still kind of like, well, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Another student had to settle for what she felt was a safety school and hadn't done full research to really feel like she was connected. And a third student went to a school she had always resisted and discovered that it was a wonderful experience for her. And it was as good as what she was anticipating at an Ivy League school. So I think it's really, when you imagine yourself in college, if you're sort of getting into this idealistic mindset about being at a particular place with a particular kind of experience only at that place, It can really sour you on whatever your experience will be when you actually start, even if you end up at that school, because if that experience is not exactly what you imagined it would be, Mm -hmm. it's going to feel wrong somehow. And so you almost have to stop yourself from rushing in and saying, this is what I think my college is going to be like at this particular school. It's, you've got to be a little bit more patient, um, Mm -hmm. I think. And the book really conveys that through the the use of those case studies. Um, So are we all in agreement that, that we like this book? Uh, mm-hmm. a, we got some nods. That's good. <laughs> yes. um, any other, <laughs> yeah, any other takeaways that we would, uh, we would want the listeners to hear about? I mean, I like that he tried to emphasize being authentic. Like give the yeah. colleges enough information about who you are, but don't try to be somebody who you aren't. I We've said that, that on the show before, I feel like. Is that? Yeah, well, it's, it's actually. <laughs> Once or twice. I, I saw it on television. <laughs> I said it on television once, so. <laughs> Perfect. So, uh, yeah, we we really enjoyed this. And this was fun. Um, I know we had to push a little bit to, to read. It was like, oh, my gosh, we committed to reading a book and discussing it <laughs> on our show. But if you like this kind of a segment, we stepped a little bit outside of our typical advice for families. And so if you like this kind of conversation, let us know. Uh, you can send us an email at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. You can always leave a comment on our social media if you're watching this video Or if you're not watching this video and you want to go find us on Facebook and give us a like and tell us that you enjoyed the conversation, we'd be glad to hear that. If you didn't enjoy the conversation, um, darn, just keep it to yourself, I guess. Uh, (laughs) uh, We will be back next week. The the one host who is not here will be back next week to discuss um, highlighting work-sponsored paths to education. They'll be doing some profiles of students who were admitted to Ivies in recent memory. So it'll help you to get a sense of schools that the students that get into Ivies. And then we'll have a segment on qualifications for in-state tuition. Uh, so we're here every week, whether we're talking about books or bringing you great advice in college admissions and college finance. We're excited to have you as listeners. Sally, Shannon, thanks for doing the extra credit and being here to discuss today. It was a lot of fun. Uh, and we'll see you all next week. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.